0: Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. We are constantly growing at Jew in the City. We are constantly trying to take our programming to the next level. Um, Our director of operations and I recently had a meeting with an analyst whose job it is to help you kind of get a handle of your metrics. What are you accomplishing? What are you doing? And in the meeting we kind of got down to what is it that we do at Jew in the city? I mean, we know what we do, but really what is the essence of what we do? What's the point of it all? And what we kind of, I think, figured out is that we help from Jews feel proud to be from, and we help Jews who are not from feel a pride in from Jewry. And what I think that means or what that leads to, it's my hunch, it's what I've sort of seen without measuring it yet, we're going to start getting to that better, is that When people feel proud about being observant Jews or feel a pride about the observant Jewish community, oftentimes it opens us up to just naturally, automatically, without even trying, want to be more committed in our Judaism. It's the Kiddush Hashem that draws us closer to our Maker, and then the exact opposite When we see awful headlines, when we see negativity, when we see people acting against the Torah, even though they dress and act and quote-unquote talk from, it's a chil Hashem. It drives us away from God. It pushes us away, in many cases, unfortunately, from feeling a sincere commitment to our Judaism and to our relationship to our Maker. And so that's really what I think, if we had to boil down who we are and what we do, you know, in in a brief uh, moment, it's that we help promote Kiddush Hashem and pride, which I think just has a natural correlation to wanting, uh, for a person to want to choose uh, a deeper commitment to a, a Jewish life of observance. And so we look for all sorts of ways to um, highlight Kiddush Hashem on Jew in the City. Um, we highlight people that have tremendous success in the professional world and show the integrity they have clinging to their Torah observance even in the most complicated jobs or the most pressured environments. And of course, we also love to highlight people who are observant Jews, who dedicate their lives to chesed and to goodness and to helping people. Now, the problem with good people, now that there should be a problem with them, is that Oftentimes they're humble people, and when someone is humble, they're not parading their good deeds around. The newspaper often doesn't write them up, and oftentimes the good deeds are even done more in quiet. And more in secrecy, Um, the people that go against the Torah, um, dressed in our clothing, unfortunately, make all the headlines and make so much news. And so it's a real uh, imbalance, unfortunately. The bad news uh, spreading far and the good news not getting as much pickup. Um, A couple months ago, I saw a headline that was going through the uh, the from news online of a very special man named Chaim Silber. And from every headline I could tell, and the write-ups that I saw, this was such a unique individual who really spent his life helping others um, to extraordinary, uh, in extraordinary ways. Um, and I guess the people in his circles, and I guess in his environment, knew about him in his life. I unfortunately didn't hear about you know the extraordinary things he did until his passing. Um, but we wanted to use our platform. To spread his inspiration, to spread his chesed, um, even beyond his life, because for everyone here listening, um, we have the chance now to um, be inspired by uh, what's possible, and hopefully that inspiration can help us become, you know, greater people and embody really what it means to be Torah observant Jews. And so we brought with us today a close friend uh, and associate of um, Mr. Chaim Silver, um, named Heshi Walfish. Um, He's known him for a dozen years. And uh, Heshi, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about your special friend.
1: Well, thank you, Alison. Thank you for inviting
0: me. Um, So if we could, you know, I guess just start off by uh, letting us know um, how and when did you and, and Chaim, and I know that he also was, seemed to be known as Lobo. I'm curious how that came to be. But you and Chaim Silver, or Lobo, come to meet, and, and when did that happen?
1: Well, actually, I met, I met Chaim about uh, a little over 40 years ago. Uh, we were together in a bungalow colony in the Catskills, um, and we became friends almost immediately as not a unique situation. I mean, pretty much anybody who met Chaim became a friend. But uh, that friendship grew as we kept going back to the same colony for uh, all these many years. I mean, we've been together in that single Balma colony, which has become uh, kind of a unique place in that it's, it's had the same core, 30 or so families who have become almost like one family over the years. And Chaim was a, uh, really a kind of linchpin of that community, and it's, it's going to be tough this summer when we go back and, and see that empty bungalow. It's going to be going to be a difficult time.
0: And then um, in the last 12 years, you also um, started working with him as well in terms of uh, his, his job?
1: Yeah, Chaim and I uh, both had um, computer leasing businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of semi-retired, and Chaim continued his business. And about 12 years ago, he asked me to... Uh, come in and, and work with him and, and help him in the company. And uh, I don't know that I would have done it for anybody else, but I, I really had and felt a special kinship with Chaim, and I was happy to join. And uh, that, was, that was a real eye-opening experience because all of the friendship that I had with Chaim uh, really was, I found out at that point, much, much, much more superficial than I had thought because working closely with him over these last dozen years uh, really gave me an entree into what, uh, what I lovingly refer to as the intergalactic global organization and the, uh, the tremendous reach that it has of reaching out to individuals and, uh, and helping in, in so many varied ways. Uh, it was It was a unique and fulfilling experience.
0: This is fascinating. I'm to hear someone you know speak with uh, such superlatives. So before we get into you know this network of, of kindness that he did, um, and really what a way to be remembered, what a legacy to have, you know, as we you know sort of for all of us that have more life to live, and we think about the choices that we're going to make, how will people speak of us when our time is up? What, what will we leave behind? What kind of network of kindness will we have built in our lifetime? Where did Chaim grow up? Was, was he always observant? You know, where, where was his Jewish education from?
1: Yes, Chaim was, what, I guess, what you'd call an FFB, from, from birth. Yeah. Um, his, uh, his, he was born in, in Brooklyn, grew up in Brooklyn, lived in Brooklyn for most of his life. He uh, he was a Torah Vadas boy, went to yeshiva and Torah uh, through high school, through elementary school, through high school. Uh, went on to Brooklyn College to earn his degree in math, and uh, set out to work in the computer field. He actually worked for IBM for a while, and then uh, gravitated over to the leasing industry and and developed, built, and developed a, a usually successful computer leasing company.
0: And were you aware of where? his chesed role models came from, I imagine that, I mean, some people obviously are born with just very big hearts and a desire to give, but often um, we learn, you know, great habits from other people that raised us or that we came into contact with. Was there that pattern in, in how Chaim was raised or people he was in touch with?
1: Yeah, sure. He, was his, he would always tell you that um, the, the biggest influence in his life were his parents. Um, you know, I I, uh, I wrote I wrote uh, an article about Chaim's life, uh, and in it I, I, I told a story about uh, uh, an incident that happened with his mother. They were they were sitting in a hospital cafeteria visiting someone who was sick, and as they were sitting there, uh, his mother ordered coffee, and she asked someone to go get her sugar you know sugar packets for her coffee, and that person left to do it, and. In the interim, someone came and brought her the sugar, mm. but she did not use it. She waited That's... until the person who she asked came back because she didn't want to have to tell that person that they had gone for nothing. Mm-hmm. So he so just... always pointed to that as an example of what how you need to treat people and how mm. you need to be aware of, of the other person's feelings. And even if you have to be inconvenienced for those Uh, a couple of minutes, whatever it was, that she had to wait for the sugar, that was was more important to make sure that that other person had a good feeling, that you had asked them to do something, they did it for you, and they deserved the thanks that came from that. And that was it. That particular story uh, is, you know, only one of, obviously, a lifetime of, of parenting, but it's one that stuck out in his mind because it showed him something that was really, really important in terms of our interpersonal relationships, and he carried that through. Literally in every every interaction in his life, his, his concern for other people, his empathy for other people, was um, almost almost beyond description.
0: So, what changed from knowing Chaim as the friend um, to then working closely with him and being more privy to you know this network of chi- of kindness that you I guess got closer to? Was it just that you spent more time with him or working with him? Well, um, I
1: mean, you know, Chaim. Uh, Chaim's business, Chaim had a, a very, very successful business, and a big part of that business was, uh, you know, taking care of the funds that came in and dispersing them and, and so on and so forth. And when I became in charge of that area of, of his life, it soon evolved into um, literally, I, you know, being a right-hand man to everything he did. And I became privy to things that no one on the outside saw. Um, You know, they may have seen manifestations of of what he did, but you couldn't understand the scope of what he was doing until you actually were were sitting and moving the money between accounts and allocating resources and seeing where they went and how they got there. Um, It was... uh, (laughs) It was as, you know, to, to say it was an eye-opening experience is to understate.
0: Are there any examples? I'm not, you know, obviously there's a certain amount of privacy you might want to have, but anything vague or any sort of ideas of what, uh, you know, he did more specifically? Well,
1: I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you that um, I, I, I was privileged to give uh, a short Hespit at the, at the Leviah, at the funeral. And one of the things that, that always stood out to me, as as one of the overriding uh, characteristics of Chaim, was that he never waited for somebody to come and ask him for help. Hmm. He would meet a stranger, literally a stranger, someone he had never met, engage them in conversation, and just some stray remark about something would trigger in him uh, a search for a way to help this person. And I've seen mm. many situations where such, such a stray remark would lead to months and sometimes years of help and support. And, and the other thing that, that always struck me was that even many, many, many times after the need for financial support had passed, the person was back on their feet or, uh, you know, the crisis had passed, it was averted, it was a one-time thing, whatever it was, people would stay in touch, and Chaim would reach out to stay in touch, um, to, to be involved in that person's life. And his, I saw people just reach out to him and come back to him time and again just to, just to ask for his advice, just to hear what he had to say, because he was a very, very, very bright guy. Above all else, I mean, he was just a very smart person, and his advice was was as valuable as any of his financial assistance. And uh, his his connection to people, in that respect, was um, something that that's that's hard to believe because not everybody's built that way. You know, a lot of people are private; people don't want to put themselves out there, but. He never hesitated, and and I suspect that people are, are reserved and guarded because they're afraid that he them up for the money and people are gonna intrude on their lives. That wasn't that wasn't the way he looked at it. He was a uh, he was a team player in in the in the ultimate team, the team of of Am Yisrael, hmm. and he felt an obligation. Um, how can I put this? As I as I said, he. He regarded all the blessings that he had in his life you know both financial and personal and whatever he regarded it as something that he was blessed with that was not his to squander it was not his to waste he had to he had to conserve it he had to guard it and in where necessary and where responsible he had to redistribute it and that's, that's basically how he lived his life. And it was uh, it was an inspirational life to be a part of.
0: Do you think that most of the people that he helped knew that the help was coming from him, or was it a mix of some anonymous and some? Um,
1: well, yeah, there was there was a real mix. I mean, yes, there were some people who obviously knew that, that the help was coming from him, and even, in many cases, even if they knew, they they sometimes didn't know the extent because when Chaim got involved, he didn't just superficially get involved. He got involved and he looked at the entire picture of what was happening. And uh, and then there are cases where people really had no idea. Uh, you know, someone would come to him and and you know explain to him a situation that that they knew about. Not, not that the person themselves came to Chaim, but someone who Chaim knew, because he was careful like that. He, he, he understood that not every cause is a legitimate cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people out there who, who will take advantage. So Chaim was, was not foolish. Chaim was careful. He, he, he examined the situation and made sure that, that, the, that the facts that were being presented were, in fact, the facts. Mm-hmm. And and then yes, he would help, unbeknownst to the to the recipient, which was, as I'm sure yeah. you know, is is the highest form of tzedakah.
0: Was there a certain cause uh, or you know, sort of space within the chesed realm that he was more connected to or moved by? You know, be it sickness or uh, yeah, widows so he was, or
1: he was most he was most moved by individual need. Mm-hmm. He supported it and. and um, you know, he gave generously to to many of the big-name institutions that are then the Jewish world. Um, but his primary focus was on helping individuals. He had uh, he had a real affinity for somebody, a Jew who was in trouble, a Jew who had fallen on hard times, a Jew who was having trouble putting food on the table, who was out of a job, who was... these were This was where he... Really focused most of his attention
0: did he inspire copycats? do you know have there Have you heard any stories of people who uh, you know knew him and uh, you know tried to uh, you know do something in their life to to be more like Chaim Silber?
1: well i would I would say that that's a definite yes you know there there's a um, there's another whole side to Chaim silver. And, um, you know, that gets to to the Lobo persona. Uh, you know, Chaim, Chaim uh, you know, I don't want anybody to get the idea that Chaim was, was some kind of untouchable and unapproachable saint. You know, he was a regular human being, a regular guy. He loved sports. And uh, that's, that's where the Lobo name came from. He was given that nickname during a, during a game once, and, and the name stuck. And he just... He took that name and he turned it into something that, that became a, a worldwide identity, really a worldwide identity. He used, he used that name to sponsor sports teams, and he would sponsor teams in Israel of kids who were there. You know, the kids go for a year in Israel, and, and one of their outlets is sports, and Chaim always looked at sports as a kosher outlet. For, especially for young men, but it, even at the end, he was he was sponsoring girls' teams in Israel too. Uh, my granddaughter was actually on a team that was sponsored by Chaim. But uh, that that sponsorship came with the real message. You know, they they would have T-shirts that would have the Lobo logo on it with the Lobo name, and people knew they were playing for Lobo. And part of that deal was you had to live up to the ideals of being a Lobo, and that meant being a mensch, being sportsmanlike, playing with respect, having having covered and, and, and honor for your teammates and your opponents. And as I said, there, there are literally hundreds, hundreds, maybe thousands at this point, of kids who have grown up playing on Lobo teams. And they understand clearly what that meant and uh and I'm sure that those those kids have absorbed you know lessons from his life. So some what of about those kids yeah. are not kids Some of those kids are, are parents now with their own kids.
0: And what about Shiva? Often Shiva is a time where stories come out about the mace that you know nobody ever knew, nobody ever heard. I would imagine that the Levaya and the Shiva was probably a, a huge number of people when someone had such a, a galactic network of uh, of chesed like uh, Chaim did.
1: Yeah. Well the, the the um the Levaya took place at Tromrahad Das in the borough park. It's a an a known funeral home and uh, we had to we had to set up uh, an external sound system because the crowds it was wall to wall, and, and on the sidewalks, so spilling onto the streets, and uh, you know, we, we had to, we had to judiciously limit the people who spoke because otherwise we would have been there for days. Hmm. Um, so yeah, and uh, and the shiva was was unique. I mean, it was, you know, someone someone pays a shiva call. It's not one of their more pleasant jobs that you have in life to pay a shiva call people came time and again I mean I saw people who came every day Mm. to pay a shiva call to be in the house to be able to to hear people talk it was um, it was almost a surreal experience but yes many people came and and talked about their personal interactions with Chaim and, and how he had impacted their lives
0: do you think that he was always Lobo? Was he always, uh, I guess, the great man that he you know, sort of left this world as? Or do you think that's, it was a work in progress? That's
1: a great, that's a great question. Um, I think we're all a work in progress. You know, we, we never get to where we ultimately want to be. But Chaim he told me so many times that even as a kid, he knew that this is what he wanted to do he knew as a kid as a small small boy he knew that he wanted to be able to help people he didn't really have a fully formed idea when he was young but as he grew and and as he as he developed into into the adult that he was his focus was always on how can i help people and that was that really became the focus of his life and in that respect in that respect, I would say, yes, he was, he was a fully developed person there, because that really was and remained the focus of his life till the very end. I mean, I, 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 told, I told the story in the article I wrote about um, the last meeting I had with him, which was the night before he was NIFTA. And, you know, we would sit together every day and we would go over the business of the day, whatever it was, and towards the end of of his life, the business aspects became less and less because we were winding the business down. And it became much more about the personal and and the charitable. And I was talking to him and he was in bed at this point. And I said, you know, Chaim, I, I, I don't want to bother you now. He said, no, tell me what we have. And I had some invitations, some wedding invitations bar invitations, that had piled up. Chaim had invitations to simchas that no one else had because he didn't view an invitation as an obligation. He viewed it as an opportunity to go and be mesamech whoever was making the simcha. And he would go to almost all of them. He wouldn't stay at everyone because many times he had two or three in a night. But he would always go, he would make an appearance, he would mush Shmazel he would dance by the Chassam Kala. And so invitations were a very, very important part of his life. And I sat there with five or six invitations that had piled up on the desk. And here it is, it's literally, he's in bed, he's under the covers. I can only see his, part of his face and I'm reading off the names, and he's telling me, oh, yes, answer the person this way and write a check for this amount. And that was my last meeting with him. Hmm. So, yes, I would say he was fully developed as that person right up to the very end.
0: Wow. And uh, we're we're almost out of time here, but I guess in our last couple of minutes, um, has... Maybe it's too soon, but has anything been done, or any thoughts about a way to continue his legacy in terms of chesed? In terms of, is there any sort of um, program, you know, being developed about, you know, kind of what what can be done to keep this going?
1: Yeah, it's it's a little too early for us to be, you know, having any definite plans. There are so many so many things that we've been approached about, and so many things that are being talked about, and. I, I, can't, I can't say that anything definitive has been, has been determined, but um, I know that he has certainly inspired so many people who have, have you know reached out in terms of what can we do to, to emulate what Chaim did. And I have no doubt that uh, while we will never be able to replace Chaim Silber, we can certainly try and emulate him going forward.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing these eloquent words. And I'm sure that our audience is touched and we're so happy and privileged to be able to share this chesed and Kedesh Hashem on our platforms.
1: Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I was able to do this and, uh, and I, I thank you again for the platform.
0: Bye-bye. And thank you so much for listening and you can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.